Hi everybody and welcome to another Robcast and I have the one and only as it says on the spine of the book Diana Butler Bass with me. Hello Diana. Hi Rob. Um, it's great to be finally in the same room with you. Yes. I've admired your work for a long time and now that you're in the back house here in my world headquarters this is so great. Um, <laughs> so Robcast friends Diana is a uh, scholar. What do you, religion scholar? Um, on my website, it says I'm an independent scholar. And I, I guess that would be a pretty good description. Um, and that's what I was trained in. I was trained as a church historian and theologian, have a PhD. But for the last 15, 18 years, I've been doing it all in public and not just in classrooms. So I guess maybe I'm a public public theologian, but that's kind of a weird title, too. Okay, friends, what that means is that you are about to have your minds blown, and here's why. I've been doing this I've been doing this God series, God, what's called God Part 1, God Part 2, God Part 3, um, and now you're going to actually, those of you who have been sort of following that series, you're going to actually hear from somebody who's so incredibly well-versed in all this, and Diana has written a new book called Grounded. How many books have you written, by the way? This is number nine. This is her ninth book. And um, the book is called Grounded, and I'm telling you this book. So what we're going to do is I'm just, well, I want to take people through just the intro and just have you riff a bit. Um, because when I read this, I was like, oh, my word, my, my Robcast people are going to go bonkers over these ideas. Um, so I've talked about three-tiered. Let's jump into three-tiered universe. I've okay. talked about three-tiered on the podcast. I know for many people that was like, oh, my word, that's so helpful. How do you explain... In the book, you talk about a revolution that is happening in regards to a three-tiered understanding of God and then something else. Um, the, I'll start there. Yeah, the main idea of the book, the sort of central um, argument, as it were, is that we are living in a time when the old vertically structured universe, and I explained it as the three-tiered universe, God in heaven, us here on earth, and all that stuff down below that you don't really want to talk yeah, about. Ominous bad stuff. <laughs> That's right. It's like, we don't really know what's upstairs, but we always wanted to go there, but downstairs was always a bad idea. And so uh, this old three-tiered vertically structured universe is disappearing, that it is becoming uh, just a historical memory uh, as new generations have moved in a different direction. They're structuring the universe in a... A, a different way. And so the the restructuring that is taking place is that we are now living in a horizontally structured universe where there's only one real reality, and that is this reality that we know, uh, the earth, the world. And uh, it, I, what I think is really interesting is that even qu even physics, quantum physics, is doing this restructuring work. So we as regular people are shifting out of a vertical structure towards a horizontal one, but um, so is physics, so is science, saying the old multi-tiered universe with a distant truth and us here that's separated from that doesn't really exist, but instead we live in a web of life or we live in universes that are stacked together. Um, sideways, like as in yes. parallel universes, yes. and so um, all of this talk from the from the highest of scientists to my 18 year old daughter, um, when she talks about the nature of reality, she does not talk about a vertically structured universe. She a God who's up there who yeah. may or may not come down here. That's correct. And do things from time to time. Who mm -hmm. do you then have to try and prove the existence of? Right. Um, instead, you know, what I see uh, younger 
Americans talking about is a God who is with us, you know, if they still believe in God. But they're very, very interested in the natural world. They're interested in the world of their their friends, their relationships, their neighbors. Um, and so this shift between the, the vertical towards the horizontal is the shift that I'm exploring. And uh, we can we can play with that a little bit more as you like. Well, yeah, I uh, I always say that we we went to the moon and, and discovered that God isn't up there. Yeah, and that much of the Bible is written with vertical three tiered language. So Jesus right. came down, light of the world, you step down, and that it's not wrong. It's just how people used to understand mm-hmm. the universe, and now. Um, we know what's above the clouds, and it's not somebody in a beard and a robe. It's endless space at some level. Right. And I even think about the architecture of the church. Um, you go through most towns anywhere in Europe, the United States, where Christianity was dominant for so many centuries, and the architecture is that of the steeple. You know, what you basically are looking at is essentially uh, religious rocket ships, Pointing towards, oh, <laughs> up. yeah, it's yeah po- all up. pointing up, and and it's like you walk up to a church, and their architecture was showing you what the whole theological point was, and the whole theological point was to direct your attention, and it had a point. Heaven, literally, it literally a had point a point on top of the steeple. That's right. It was like a big arrow pointing uh. pointing up to God. And so we have this external architecture of the vertical universe that's all around religious life that we, uh, you know, we sort of take for granted. But the truth of it is, is that nobody builds buildings like that without some sort of idea or ideology or philosophy or theology behind it. Yeah. And the theology behind it is, is if you just take a moment, you realize what it is. It's all pointing towards a God in heaven. And so you have this external structure. But the what's fascinating to me is that the internal structure of most religions is also like that. And so one of the things I talk about in Grounded, just kind of briefly, is that in the old vertical three-tiered universe, you have heaven, earth, and hell. And the primary problem is we're on earth. We have to figure out how to get into heaven and avoid hell. So you want to go up and not down. And um, how does that happen? Well, I think that the church not only is po- shaped like a, you know, a giant pointer towards God in heaven, but we structured internally our theology and our sacraments and our, our sort of life of practice as what I call the holy elevator. Oh, interesting. And it's the elevator that brought things down from heaven. Holy stuff got put on the elevator by God up there in heaven. And God would send down, for example, uh, God's word or the sacraments. So if you're a Catholic, there'd be, God would put seven in. Or if you're a Protestant, there'd be two. If you're a Baptist, you get a couple ordinances. <laughs> and, or, and grape juice, not wine. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Or grape juice. And, and uh, also rule books, you know, what you're supposed to do or not do. Uh, God would send those down. And then, uh, so, so God puts stuff in the elevator up in heaven, but sends it down to us. And at the doors of the holy elevator, there are the holy elevator operators who we've actually sent to elevator operator school 
Oh my goodness. And those, of course, are the... This metaphor is so ridiculous. It's such a cartoon and a caricature, and yet it contains so much truth. Do you know what I mean? Well, I keep telling people it's a little crude, but what could be more appropriate description of the church over the last 500, maybe 1,000 years? And then if you do say, believe, follow, commit, buy, whatever it is, that will then get you in and you push the right button and then you go up. That's exactly right. So the the uh, minister, you know, the person who's gone to Holy Elevator Operator School turns around with this stuff and says to the people who are gathered there, want to know what God has sent down in the elevator, uh, do this, just like what you said, follow these rules, uh, take this bread and wine, buy this product, listen to this word. And if you do that, when you die, I will press the up button. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and let you ride up rather than pressing the down button, and um, that has essentially been the function of religion over the last couple of centuries, and that is what people are rejecting. That understanding of religion. That understanding of religion um. is going away because if people don't believe in a three-tiered universe anymore, yeah, what good is an elevator church? Right, right, right. And you and I uh, were just talking before we turned the mic on that so, so much of what is the the headline on the website, the sort of research findings, um, people are like, no, 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 it's, you just need better music, you need a cooler building, you need better coffee. Because hmm. I've always had this, no, 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 you need to talk about the God who's behind it all. That's right. You need to talk about the thing behind the thing behind the thing, because if people are fundamentally either suspicious of that being, because that being is going to send billions of people to hell, or they don't even have the framework anymore. Mm -hmm. That's the issue, the thing behind the thing behind the thing. Yeah, and that's what Grounded really became for me. I, I realized that my own understanding of God was changing, and that here I was... I primarily for the last decade have been working with liberal Protestant congregations and trying to help them be more viable and vital. And a lot of that work was around spiritual practices and helping people engage the world in richer and, and better ways. And I loved that work. But one of the things I realized was that even the most vibrant churches I was working with were having there was a disconnect between the what was going on in the congregation and the world around them. And and although this story is not in Grounded because it really just crossed my path in the last few weeks, um, it is what Grounded winds up being about. Um, and that is on Tanger, there's a little island called Tanger Island, and it's in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay. And um, it is one of the pieces of geography in the United States that is sinking fastest un- under the threat of global warming and rising sea levels. Now, Tanger Island has been settled since the 1650s, and on Tanger Island is this amazing Methodist church. It started out as an Anglican church, and when the Methodists came along about 150 years after its beginning, it became Methodist. And at this little church, which has been in business for almost 400 years, is the oldest Methodist class meeting in the whole of North America. And it's been going since the time John Wesley himself was alive. 
And this church is still vibrant. It serves everyone on the island. They have an amazing prayer meeting. They reach out to their whole community in need. In other words, it is, it is an ancient congregation full of wisdom, faithful, been proclaiming the, the gospel for all this time, doing exactly what they were supposed to do. It's a great church. But the island is sinking. And when I realized that you can have the best church you can possibly have, but if the whole island is going underwater, it's not going to be worth anything. And, and that image mm. of a church on a sinking island really became for me kind of the, the urgent, it's really kind of the urgent image that's behind Grounded. Because instead of just talking about what co- constitutes a good church, as I had been for so long, I decided really I needed to figure out what, what we were going to do about the ground. Um, what is going on the ground underneath our feet? And for me, the, that question always and necessarily involves uh, theology. It's a question of God. And so, so that's how grounded uh, for, for me is really a, a book about God, because I really need to know the thing that's under everything else. And you're talking about the thing behind the thing, but in a sense, that tan- Tanger Island image, it's not just the thing behind the thing, it's what is under, under everything. What, it, what, is the, what is the ground under our feet? You, um, boy, that image, I'm going to like be thinking about that for a while. The, you talk about how World War II, mm-hmm. essentially, there were some cracks, but the, what is it about World War II that many people in the modern world are almost drafting off of some of the things that happened in that? How did that affect how people understood this? Um, world War I was pretty shocking for Europe and sort of broke up the old worldview for them and began to introduce questions of atheism and whether and secularism and whether or not you could live without God. Um, but World War II, I think, was so much more in, global in its impacts. And um, while there was horror and you know, doubt that emerged for Europeans out of World War I, the Holocaust and the bomb out of World War II really shook the whole world. I don't think we've ever really, truly recovered mm. um, from those pictures of, of Auschwitz. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. don't know that we ever should recover. Right, Actually, right. I hope we always have those pictures yeah. in our mind. Um, and also the, the, the pictures of, of Japan and that, those bombs dropping and realizing that the idea of destroying the world was not just left in God's hands anymore, uh, but that we could actually physically um, destroy the world. And and that whole constellation of global destruction and the the truly the true horror of what human beings could do to one another, um, I think began to, in a sense, that's been the rising sea level of the last sixty or seventy years. And a lot of, I think at first, a lot of really nice people just tried to ignore it and thought it would all go away. Um, but now, all you have to do is turn on the news every day and realize that the the ripple effects of the possibility of the physical destruction of the world through nuclear bombs and all kinds of other weapons of mass destruction, and the real horrors of what people can do to one another, that that hasn't gone away. As a matter of fact, it's it's yeah. more prevalent than ever yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
in more places and people are more aware of it. And how does that affect a three-tiered view of God and the, you talk here about there had been so much death relate, talking about World War II, you write, it was too awful to consider that God might have been a wartime casualty as well. Oh, I guess I did write that. Isn't that great? It's, no, <laughs> That's it's a good powerful. sentence. <laughs> um, and then you write, it became increasingly evident that you cannot revive a God for a world that no longer exists. Yeah. Well, the old the old God, the one before the middle part of the 20th century, um, people didn't ask where that God was. Instead, they would ask things like, what were, was that God's intentions? And so if something horrible happened, uh, people would say, well, what is God trying to teach us? Or is God trying to punish us so that we behave better? Or um, what is God up to here? And so people would try to discern that faraway God is trying to talk to us. And so sending down these casualties in the elevator was a way of getting our attention. Yeah. Um, but with, with all of this, if God is really sending down murdering six million Jews in ovens, and if God is really sending down nuclear bombs, um, clearly any sane person has got to say that that God is a monster. Right, exactly. I'm out, Yeah, they say. And so people, I think that's what slowly has dawned on people across the world, is like, I can't worship a God like that. And and so goodbye, you know, goodbye God. If that's the vision of God, well, then I'm out of here. So I think that that vision of God uh, as the one who is hurling stuff at us or sending things down mm-hmm. in the elevator for good, if it happens to be bread and wine, but for ill, if it happens to be gas chambers at Auschwitz, you know, th- th- there's no possible way of making sense of that God. The cognitive dissonance, everybody just checks out. I'm not even going to try to hold that anymore. Oh, I can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it yeah. makes no sense to me. And so the question for me increasingly over the last, oh, maybe 15 years, since especially since 9-11, I think that was for me the moment in which I really understood finally what Holocaust theology was all about or what people were talking about in the 1960s when they talked about the death of God. Yes. Um, so so w- for me, that that moment was, was 9-11, and I kept thinking not... Um, what has what is God intending here? But I began to ask the question in my own heart and soul: Where is God? You know, where is God in the midst of all of this? And that has occupied the better part of my theological imagination for the last, you know, since two thousand one. So it's almost fifteen years now. And um, I didn't realize that other people were asking the same question. Mm. That's I, always how it is, isn't it? You have this thing in your heart, and you start sniffing around, and then you discover other people are thinking about this as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not really asking the question, who is God? I mean, to me, that seems fairly obvious, is that God is compassion. God is love. God is a sense of mystery. God is awe and wonder. So there are all kinds of ways that I knew who God was, but where was the thing I couldn't figure out. I mean, where was really the question for me? Some of my friends, the question is, why God? And I understand that question. That comes out of that Holocaust moment of horror. Um, but uh, the question for me is, where? You know, if 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 we if I really do believe in a God of love and compassion, if I really do believe in that sense of wonder, I sometimes refer to God as um, the unfinished sentence. Oh, nice. 
It's the place you, you know, you're a writer too. And so you sit there and you're, you can't quite finish the sentence. And there's something really sacred in that. And so I, I think of God as being that un, the unfinished sentence. And um, so if that is all God, where is that God right now? Where is that God when ISIS is beheading people on the internet? Where was God at Katrina? Where is God? And you do, you, um, you quote Heschel, who I, I love, Abraham Heschel, mm-hmm. referred to the God of Pathos, the God who loves the world profoundly, who feels with creation and participates in its life. Yeah. I, I spent some time this um, past fall reading the book of Job, uh, which sounds like a downer, and I'm, I'm kind of actually I think happy. It's kind of awesome. I'm sort of a happy person. Oh, well, good. I'm glad you like it because yeah. I do too. Because the, que- yeah. the question, where is God? Uh, and I think that Heschel um, knows this, and it shows up in his, his mm-hmm. writing. Um, but the question, where is God? One of the few places that question is actually asked in the Bible is in the book of Job. And you get up into, I think it's chapter 32 or, or 33, it's towards the end of the book. You, Job actually is so frustrated and so many hideous things have happened and, and the three worst friends in the history of humankind have yes. already you know, right, right. given their sermons right. about right. how Job needs to get his act together. Yeah. And, um, and Job just sort of cries out, God, God, where are you? Where is God? You know, in the midst of all this loss and despair and all this sort of stuff. And um, the most fascinating thing is this: another prophet comes in and sort of opens the stage for God's voice, for God, God's own self to answer. And you get a, another chapter down or so, and God responds. <coughs> and God says... Chapter 38. Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Yeah. Where were you when I gave orders to the right. morning? Where were you when right. I said the lightning bolts? Look at the come? look at the stars. Oh, it's so you good. You know, he says, you know, where were you when all this creation yeah. happened? Look at the stars. Look at the mountains. Surely look you at know the creature. you were already born. Yeah. You have lived so many years. And you think about that. <laughs> and what it, what to me, and this was for me the discovery of grounded is that that sense of loss, that sense of <coughs> agony. That sense of where the absence of God, you know, is really a comp. It's honest, and it's biblical, and it is human. And for us to be able to articulate it is part of our our journey. Uh, but then the other piece. So there's a kind of um, a friend of mine calls it the um, the prophetic agony of the soul, this prophetic loss. Mm. Um, but what what the answer is is creation and beauty. God answers the question of agony, pain, and loss with, "Look at the stars." And so, prophetic grief and prophetic beauty collide in the Book of Job, and I think that's what Heschel is, gets at too, um, as well as people. Like Bonhoeffer, and I think that uh, probably Martin Buber, it, th- all of them in the midst of, of tremendous suffering and tremendous doubt about the presence of God, all get to this place where somehow a new connection with creation or with um, other human beings mm-hmm. is the place where the sacred is relocated. And so the question, where is God, 
is a question, it winds up being answered by, I am with you. I am with you. Uh, yeah, yeah. I am with you in creation. I am with you in the love of your neighbor. I'm with you in the relationships of your friends and family. Uh, I'm with you in the in in this friendship. In this, in it, it, I'm just with you. And so it, it that is the mysterious location of God, and that's the, that's the pivot between the horizontal and the or the vertical and the horizontal universe. Mm-hmm. Is that in the old structure of the vertical universe, God wasn't with us. God was in heaven, and God would send stuff down for us or bring us up to God. But that whole, oh, I, I, ugh, I hate that vertical language. I, it makes me crazy. There's so many hymns that talk about grace coming down. I can't even sing those hymns anymore. I have this picture of this elevator <laughs> with, <laughs> with this box that says grace, and it sends down on the elevator, and they yeah. open the box. It's like Pandora's box at the base. Like an Amazon drone delivery <laughs> Yeah, and I can't do that anymore because what if grace doesn't come down to us? What if grace is look at the stars? Who have been there the whole time. That have been there the whole time. That you are now waking up to. That's correct. Opening your eyes. That's correct. Okay, you write. There's such great writing, by the way. Just I just love I mean, God has become unmediated and local animating the natural world and human activity in profoundly intimate ways, mm-hmm. which I love. Now, I, we have to talk about the minor chord because you say, of course, what you're talking about, uh, all throughout Grounded, what you're talking about has always been the path of mystics in the world's religions, what I often call the minor chord of faith mm-hmm. is what you write. Now, however, the personal, mystical, immediate, and intimate is emerging as the dominant way of engaging the divine. Um, I'm, I'm married. Kristen is, is the mystic to the bone. And I remember after one of my, uh, first sermons, this, uh, literature professor at a local university pulled me aside and she said, I'll never forget it. Carol Winters. She pulled me aside and she said, you're a mystic. And, and then she pointed to all the people who were there to hear me preach. And she said, and they don't realize it. Huh? Um, and I, I keep meeting people who, uh, people who listen to the Robcast, who they're mystics and they didn't come from a tradition that gave them language for the minor mm-hmm. chord of faith. Mm-hmm. And um, for some of them, the, the word mysticism or mystic is a bad word, which is nuts. But um, can you talk a bit about the minor chord? Yeah, uh, as you were. T- Reading that passage, I thought about the bad rap that mysticism often gets. Yes. Because sometimes I think the stereotype of mysticism is a person who sits in a dark closet and has all kinds of wonderful experiences about God. In uh, liberal Protestantism, where I hang out a lot, uh, we refer to those people as navel gazers. And there has been for a long time a sort of a tension between the contemplative life and the life of social justice. And oftentimes Protestants have split those things in half, saying that, well, it's really about serving the poor. It's not about, you know, praying in your closet. But you know what? I think that that is such a misunderstanding of both of those things. Um, Because mysticism 
I believe, and the way I write about it here, is simply an awareness or an awakening to be able to see the connections that are all around us, to be able to understand how our lives are entangled with one another and how our lives are entangled in and with God. It's um, I, I use the image a lot of the web in the in the book to talk about the horizontal uh, reality, and um, and mysticism is seeing that because sometimes those threads seem pretty thin. You know, we just kind of get concentrated on whatever is immediately in front of us, what we're worried about. But if you develop your sight um, to be able to look at those connections, those points where it's not just what is immediately in front of you, but that there is this much bigger picture. Um, Some of those things are mysterious. Some of them are kind of invisible. Uh, Mm -hmm. Some some other religions refer to it as synchronicity. Mm and to be able to really see that and to appreciate it. And I think that that's the thing that saints and mystics through the history of the church have been able to do. For some reason, they could develop the capacity to see those connections when the connections weren't necessarily obvious. And um, right now, um, one of the little statistics that I kind of find fascinating in all of the new kinds of data that's coming out on religion, we have so many wonderful uh, groups doing analytical you know, research in religion, is that 49% of Americans report that they have had a mystical or spiritual experience in their life that has somehow been transformative. And so that means one out of two of us is walking around on this planet having had some sort of amazing experience of God, of wonder, of the divine that made a difference to who we are. And we lack language for talking about it. And um, part of, as I said, part of the reason I love that statistic is that that question was asked in 1962 by Gallup. And in 1962, only 22% of Americans said that they had that experience. And it means in our lifetime, really, it has more than doubled. And so that's really interesting. It is really interesting. And um, the just three weeks ago, the new Pew report came out on shifts in American religious landscape, and the headline, of course, was uh, the number of people who are the nuns. The nuns are rising. People's nuns meaning people not going to church, not people wearing habits. <laughs> That's right. N o n e s. I usually spell it out. Uh, so that people who are none of the above religiously, that's rising. It's now twenty three percent of the population. Um, American religiosity is softening. People have lessened and and uh, eroded senses of religious identity. So this was the the report. But on page, I think it was twenty seven of the report. You have to read. Because you read, you I would do. read. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the difference between you and me. I would be like some study, and you'd be like, no, no, on page twenty seven, third paragraph down. <laughs> <laughs> well, you asked me if I was a scholar, and so I guess so that's, that's what, what happens. Scholars, scholars, scholars read all of it. yeah, we read all the back pages. And so, anyway, on page twenty-seven, there is a, an incredible set of questions, and the questions were things like, um, "Have you, in the last week, experienced a sense of deep peace and well-being? Um, have you, in the last week, experienced a sense of awe and wonder in the universe?" Um, do you understand your life primarily as a quest for meaning and purpose? I mean, so these are all questions about spirituality, 
about connection, really about mysticism, but don't tell Pew that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but so, and you know, so religious identity is dropping, church membership is dropping, the number of people who are disaffiliated is rising, and on page 27, what we have is the number of people in the United States who have felt deep peace and well-being in the last week is 65% of the population. Uh, 52% of the population has had a sense of awe and wonder at creation or the universe in the last week. Most Americans, I think it's 75%, are looking for a sense of purpose and meaning and see that something that yes. has to do with their spiritual of life. Of course. And of course. So, and so I looked at this report, yes. and all the newspapers were pitching the report as uh, religion is declining. And I'm reading page 27, and I thought to myself, but mysticism is rising. And I really am wondering, you know, if we think of mysticism as being this deeper sense of connection, having this grounded sense of Mm well-being, everything, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well, from Julian of Norwich. If that is actually really growing in American society, yes, are we living in the not the age of the decline of the church, but the age of the rise of the mystics? Yeah, yeah. And and um, I mean, I was so I was so excited about that because what I was trying to do in this project was to write a theology which would give permission to those people who were finding God in their experience, who who were those kind of mystics without any label. Yeah. To give them permission yeah. to just say, yeah, it's okay. It is okay. It's really good that you see God in the sunset. It's really good that when you go hiking or surfing or any of those things. Oh, that, thank you. Well, I know you love the, the ocean. <laughs> I, I love the ocean too. Yeah. I don't usually get on it except in boats, but I love I love boats, and um, and so um, you know to be connected with nature in those ways. You know, it's okay if when you're playing with your dog in the backyard that you feel a sense of God. It's okay when you're walking your kids in their stroller that you feel God. Yes, yeah. it's not just okay. It's, this is normal and natural. That's right. And any system that ever got a hold of your brain for however long it did, and somehow told you that you had to go through an officially sanctioned approval or something is actually in the way it's in the way (laughs) yes and that's what churches and so i talk about the minor chord you know through church history this kind of way of approaching um faith not only church but also for jews and for muslims buddhists hindus all, all the great world traditions have always had a thread of people who see those connections. Yes. And who know how to access them, who understand spiritual practices that get you more deeply into awareness of that part of life. And a lot of times those people have wound up uh, on trial. I always say shot, shunned, or limping. (laughs) Oh! (laughs) When you see, and the dominant consciousness around you doesn't see what you see. Right. First off, you can never unsee. Once you've tasted, you can never untaste. Mm-hmm. And when you see and those around you don't. Yeah. This is why all, all the great enlightened ones have a bit of a limp, an ache. They have a, a, a radiant joy, and yet mm-hmm. there's a little tenderness there. Yeah. They've had some stones thrown at them. Yeah. You've, you've not been understood by the dominant tribe or a tribe, and 
Yeah. You know what it's like to be kicked to the curb and yet you've tapped into the eternal. So mm-hmm. that trumps it. And yet you still have some very real bruises. One yeah, time, I can talk about that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> my, my life yeah. experience has plenty of that in it. But more in a sense, you know, even beyond just you and me sitting here and what our experience brings to the story. Um, years ago when I was just a, when I was a college professor and I did that for a few years um, before I went out and started doing this on an independent level, um, I taught a church history class and I would teach about the minor chord uh, because those were my favorite people in church history. So I was teaching about the people who stood up against the sort of pressures of institution in order to proclaim a vision of God that they had caught. And those people are usually the ones who changed the world. St. Francis. Yes. You know, nobody remembers the name of the Pope. (laughs) 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 And nobody has statues of that Pope who opposed St. Francis in their garden. Right. You know, and so I've never seen anybody with a statue of a pope in their garden except for maybe at the vatican the pope might actually have some statues of other popes but um (laughs) but he he gets a pass um and so when it comes to our heroes our heroes are really usually the the mystics the minor chords the minor chords and so that's the way i taught church history so i got through this one semester when i was teaching at my first job was teaching at an evangelical christian college it was such a mismatch uh but they were great students and um and uh you know there there are a lot of great students who come out of great great thinkers and great writers who come out of that world but so i had these great students and they loved this class even though my colleagues were very worried about it and one of my students said on the last day of class you know, Professor, and then I was just a butler then. You know, Professor Butler, I loved this class, but I have one question. And I said, what's your question? And he looked at me and said, was there anybody in church history who died in their bed? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I just went, oh, my gosh. You know, all I presented are the people who got in trouble. And a lot of those people. Uh, yeah, so if you so, want to really make a mark, you're probably going to get hung. Well, that's or a, crucified or a, shot. Apparently, or that was the thesis of, of my class, <laughs> and I didn't notice. <laughs> well, um, but I think it's very. I can only imagine the number of people who are listening to this podcast who are having very real experiences of life and vitality mm-hmm. and union and one taste and they're seeing all sorts of new colors on the spectrum and right. they are in a family system, business, church, uh, neighborhood, friend group with people who perhaps aren't seeing the same things. You and know, there's always a cost. Yeah, you know, there always is a cost, but this is the po- this is the thing that I'm I I'm wondering about now. You know, when I talk about the rise of the mystics or that the minor chord I think might be becoming the major chord. Um, if that data is true from Pew, that means that our fears might be misplaced about talking about such experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. If, if one out of two Americans now can say to a survey taker that they have had a spiritual or mystical experience that has transformed their lives, that means there's a pretty high chance that the person who's sitting across from you at the lunch table has had that experience too, but nobody knows how to talk about it. And so all we have is this sort of what I would call woo-woo language 
about mysticism. And what I was trying to do was to put it in a framework, in a set of stories that is about everyday life. Yes, yes. And now I think that if you see these kinds of connections, when you're you know, walking along, I, I have a practice, I walk along the Potomac River, um, somewhere between two and four miles every morning. And that has become a a nature walk, a prayer practice, a centering exercise. I notice things about the world around me. Uh-huh. It is actually an experience of both my world. It's an everyday thing. My feet are on the ground, and yet it's mystical. And I'm just a mom in Fairfax County, Virginia. Now, I'm not a nun. I happen to, as an N-U-N, you know, so I don't live in a yeah, convent. Yeah. I don't have any really sort of deep and profound spiritual practices that I've been doing for, you know, 40 years of my life that have taken me to a new place. I struggle with prayer. I have a a teenager who's, you know, bucking for independence. I have a car that breaks down. I have a mortgage to pay. And yet in the midst of all of that stuff, that is the template. That is the, that is the stage, I guess. That's what I would want to say. That's the stage where this kind of new mysticism is arising. It's a mysticism, a connection of everyday life. And um, I think what's happening is that regular people like me, regular people like you, are we're essentially kind of storming heaven, you know, if you kind of get that. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least we're storming the elevator shaft, and we're, we're taking it all out ourselves and not waiting for those authorities to hand us this stuff. And we're saying we can handle holy things. We can understand these connections. We can preach these sermons. We can see the food that we set at our table as sacrament. And yeah. and that is a revolution. And I think it's happening everywhere. And if people are experiencing that, they should be encouraged. They should not be they should not be worried or ashamed or want to hide because they have a lot of friends. And they might just not know it yet. Yes. You know, it cracks me up that uh, I'll, uh, a pastor will want to meet to have some spiritual questions, or and they'll be the pastor of some mega, mega million, multi-million dollar church with a huge budget staff, and they'll be like, we got this new thing we're doing, we're trying to get people connected with each other in their neighborhoods. Oh. And so that people can have, like, we're doing like these backyard barbecues, and I'll always burst out laughing that, like... Your big, giant, shiny mega church is spending all of its time and energy <laughs> trying to get people to have meals with each other. You don't need millions and millions of dollar budgets <laughs> for people to have meals with each other. That's right. Like, I can kind of just like, go across the street to my neighbor, Jeff, and we'll have some wine together. Like, that's how it works and where I live. <laughs> like, I don't need anybody to do that. Um, but just this awareness that... There is a divine presence here and now, and there is something happening right right now. Now you say something here. Uh, at the same moment, when massive global institutions seem to rule the world, mm-hmm. how do you like being read your own book? Um, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I like it. Um, you're like, oh, it's pretty good. Um, at the same moment, when global massive global institutions seem to rule the world. There is an equally strong counter movement among regular people to claim personal agency in their own lives. We grow food in backyards. We brew beer. We we weave cloth and knit blankets. We shop local. We create our own playlists. We tailor delivery of news and entertainment. In every arena, we customize and personalize our lives, creating material environments 
to make meaning, express a sense of uniqueness, and engage causes that matter to us in the world. And then you say, so in our spiritual lives, we're doing the same. Yes. It's just so insightful. I had never made the connection, the economic dimension of all of this. Because mm-hmm. you know, my, like my friend who makes my surfboards and all my friends who are opening little shops and they're brewing their own beer and they're mm-hmm. owning things at some level. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, owning their relationships and, and the sense that there is a divine presence mm-hmm. right here, right now for all of us. Yeah, I think it's really exciting. I, and I do think it is almost a protest movement to that global sort of corporate control. If we can take control of anything, it has to be in our backyards, you know. And the idea of churches being these big global institutions, and I actually love your example, somebody would try to programatize (laughs) neighborly relations. I mean, uh, I would just never go to a church like that. I'm really sorry about it for your friend's sake. But it makes me mad when I hear about that. I think some of these things had really great roots. Let's go change the world. And then oftentimes the institution gets in the way. Yeah. And now lots of people are just realizing we have the power to take this back and mm-hmm. and rediscover. The amount of people I meet with who are like, this is what my friends and I have been up to, and this is a thing we're building, uh, is this almost like looking for permission. Um, because there's somebody somewhere who's told them this is how it's done. Mm-hmm. And you just get to smile. My friend Liz always just says, she says, her, Liz Gilbert, the writer, she says, my job is to hand out permission slips. Oh my gosh. Um, I, I know she said that because I actually tell people that yeah, yeah. at events. I say, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't even really need permission, but if you do, I'm willing to give you a slip, you know? Yeah, exactly. and, um, and that's, that's what this book is. This is a big old permission slip to say whatever religious experience you've had as it, not whatever, because there are some spiritual experiences, and this is why people get worried about them. There are some spiritual experiences that do come out of delusion, Yep. and there yep. are some that are dangerous. But what happens with those kinds of spiritual experiences is that the community communities really do hold people account to those. We know when somebody has a spiritual experience that is going to wind them up in a suicide ward at a hospital. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And if if you have that kind of spiritual experience, hopefully your friends are standing there and they're going to take you to that place. Um, so there are spiritual experiences that aren't good, but for the most part, spiritual experiences are just what they are. They're just spiritual experiences, and you've had it. You've had this experience. So the question is not, um, you know, is it good or is it bad? But the question is. What are you going to do with it? And how are you going to allow it to speak to you and change your life? And so you don't need permission to have it. These things just happen. And um, and uh, I that's what the church has done for way too long. It's given it's said, these are permitted experiences and these are unpermitted experiences. Yeah. And uh, the range of that has been fairly narrow on either side of that ledger. And now it's just like people won't up with that right and and in some ways this beautiful return to what jesus is doing again and again and again in the gospels is whatever system has been constructed oh you only baptize people like on the south wall of the city of jerusalem and the temple mount oh we're going to baptize people out in the wilderness right um over and over again whatever system has been created that says oh these people are clean but these people are unclean nah actually everybody's kind of clean oh these people are the sons and daughters of god and these people aren't no, actually, you can all call God Dad. Every system that's been right. created to mediate the experience. 
That's right. Jesus is, nah, actually, you can just go direct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And you can preach the whole of the New Testament that way. I, yes. I mean, that's one of the things I've been having a lot of fun doing recently. People do ask me to come preach in their churches quite a bit. And I've been having a great time uh, preaching on those gospel passages to try to emphasize the horizontal aspects of them. Right, right. And also... Because they're there. Yes, they are really there. Because some people are like, oh, you mean the Bible was three-tiered language and now we don't do that, so we reject that. No, no, no. We're just saying that was a dominant way that people saw things, but there's lots of other things people were seeing as well. Well, you know, the minor chord shows up, as you just said, all over the Bible. Yes. Um, Yes. One of the sermons that I was that I preached earlier this fall was on Exodus 3, which is actually kind of amazing that an Episcopalian knows where something is in the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, that's the great passage where Moses goes up to the mountain and meets God. That's the burning bush. And God reveals God's name. I am who I am, or I am. I am who I will be. There's a couple different trans- yes. translations of that. And so it's an it's an amazing story. I, I subtitled my sermon, um, When a Spiritual But Not Religious Moses Goes Up to a Mountain and Meets God. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, we don't think about this very often, but Moses grew up as an Egyptian. And so his whole sort of structure of religion was this very scary uh, vertical structure where the gods lived above the pyramids. Oh, because the Egyptians were very hierarchical and vertical. That is exactly right. And And everything in Egyptian religion was about eternal life. I mean, literally, it gave you no rewards here on this earth unless you were the pharaoh or one of pharaoh's high priests. Um, And all of the rewards were if you were just a peasant or a person on sort of the bottom of this pyramid structure of society is that you would go after you were dead to live with Osiris in the underworld. Um, You didn't even get to a heaven above, above. You you got a heaven that was below. Right, even that was like three-star accommodations. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, right. It was pretty bad. So Moses grows up in this incredibly hierarchical vision of a multi-tiered universe where the gods live far off in heaven and they're very random, they're highly destructive, and they need... And their uh, representatives on Earth are slave owners. Yes, that's the, the, I, the, and all and and those slaveholders sucks. Yeah, those <laughs> slaveholders are really rich. Yeah, and and they're taking all everything out of the people and sort of applying it to themselves in order that they can act as the mediators between the slaves and the peasants and these. If rat- I can make enough profit off of the sweat of your brow. Maybe I can do something to earn the favor of somebody even higher up the rank than me. Yeah, that's right. Which is right. an awful system that keeps them in power and everybody else subjugated. It was horrible. Yeah, hell on earth, yeah. But Moses grew up in that, and he grew up in the top of it because he grew up in Pharaoh's household. Yeah. So he what was... a great reading of that story. I never it, thought about that. It, so he was a person who was a beneficiary of the vertical structure at, in every way possible. And then he finds out that he's... A Jew, and he, you know, sees this Egyptian overlord murder or or beat up a slave, and then he murders the overlord, and so he runs away to the countryside, and that's um, all we know about Moses. uh, Despite Charlton Heston's wonderful movie, that's all we know about Moses um, until we get to chapter three of Exodus, Um, and it says at the very beginning of chapter three and. Moses was taking the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro, who was a high priest of Midian. So Moses is still not—he's a Jew by birth or by biology, but he still doesn't know anything about 
the Hebrew Bible because he's married into a family who's the his father-in-law is a high priest of Midian, and nobody in biblical studies even knows what that means. Right, right, right. <laughs> like, I called the Jethro factor. It really is like, what the? Who are these? Yeah, what? who are these people? <laughs> <laughs> so, so here is the guy Moses, who's going to be the liberator and lawgiver of Israel, the greatest Jew ever to live. And he's never been in a synagogue. He doesn't know anything about all the stories of the Hebrews. You know, it may be somebody who it was his nurse who was a Hebrew whispered him Hebrew prayers at night, but he doesn't know what those mean. He's grown up in a completely different hmm. system, and the system is hierarchical, vertical religion. Oh, man. And so he takes his flock up to a mountain, and so here's the the person, the spiritual but not religious Jew going on a hike up to the mountain, and he, he, he knows that he's supposed to believe in this God of Israel, but he doesn't know anything about the God of Israel. And so what happens is that there's this bush, and it's on fire, and uh, from it comes a voice, and it says, Moses. Mm. And Mo- what, I, what I love about it is Moses says, here I am. And we don't necessarily think that there are two I am's in the story. There's Moses and there's God. And the voice from the bush says, you're standing on holy ground. And so Moses, the I am, here I am, is standing on holy ground. And God, I am who I am, are engaging together on this ground in a conversation of mutuality. It's completely non-hierarchical. I imagine Moses, what do you want me to do, Lord? You know, so he's thinking Pharaoh, you know, who do you want me to enslave? Um, how should I please you? Oh, that's that was what he would have known, right? And so he was he was probably thinking about that hierarchical vision and that God up there, those gods up there in heaven who would want him to do something to mediate on go make somebody's life miserable. Somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come on. So so he's thinking, how how's this guy going to yeah. want me to set the Jews up on top? And who are we supposed to enslave in order to, you know, make a new kind of world? And God says, well, I don't really want anything from you. I have heard the cry of my people, and I love them. And I want you to go and tell them that, and I'm going to free them. But wait a second, what am I supposed to do? I have heard the cry of my people, I love them, and I'm going to free them. And, I mean, Moses says, you're kidding me. (laughs) Yeah. And and he said, well, what am I supposed to tell them? And he said, well, just tell them I am sent you, which is the goofiest thing ever yeah, for right. God to say. And uh, then he said, I want you to bring them back here. There is a condition on this. I do want you to bring them back here. I want you to worship me here on holy ground. So he doesn't say, I want you to build a temple or put up pyramids or construct a whole new system. I want you to just bring them here. You're going to worship me on this mountain. And I'm going to give you a land. And when I preached in that sermon, I actually started, I was preaching the sermon about that contrast between the vertical structure that Moses grew up in and what God is telling Moses is the covenant. And the covenant is about the land. It's about relationship. It's about love. It's about justice. Mm. And that is the core story of the Hebrew scriptures. And it's not a story about the three-tiered universe. It's a story about two I am's meeting at a bush. 
That's good. And see, we've read it all wrong. We should probably stop right there because that's awesome. <laughs> High five. That, oh. It's so well put that it, that it's soil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is life lived here and now well. That's fantastic. And once you see it, you can't go yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. Once you taste, you can't untaste. Yeah. And I am mm. actually very excited. I think that we live in a time when that is what people are hungry for and that that is what people are really seeing. And I think that all of these things are connected. Those things that I write there about you know, craft beers and farmers markets and learning to love in my neighborhood and you know, things I don't write about that are implied here, things like Black Lives Matter or things like you know Occupy Wall Street and things that are remaking the world around us. There is so much that is deep and beautiful and good right now. And the last thing we can afford is to let our fears take us, drag us back to saying that we need a new three-tiered, vertically structured universe in order to protect us from some bad people. With just better music and better coffee or something. Yeah, or, you know, with bigger guns. Yeah. I mean, I hear that a lot in politics. Right now, people are so afraid of terrorism because they say, oh, that's chaotic. And so we have to restore order in order that we're all going to be safe. Well, safety doesn't come from a vertically structured, ordered universe with people with big guns. Safety comes from I am meeting I am on a hillside. So good. Thank you so much. So good. So well said. So moving. You and I have a similar buoyant. These are really exciting times. Mm -hmm. And everybody wants to talk about these things. And we're free to talk about them and explore them and build things. And I love that about you. I love that. And the book has that sort of jumping off the pages, this sense of like, look at this extraordinary thing that's happening. And it's so good. Mm Oh. How can people get a hold of you? Um, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. I have a website, which is just my name, dianabutlerbass.com. And I love Twitter and Facebook. And I hang out on social media when I can and connect with readers and ideas. And so people can reach me through social media. And if they want you to come speak at their barbecue, (laughs) beer craft, house, church, uh, comp, whatever. That's at your Diana Butler Bass website. It it is. And the book is Grounded, Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution. Peoples, I'm telling you, this, the kind of things I talk about in this podcast, this is um, exactly the kind of things we've been talking about. And only you just have so much depth and great language, and it just takes it all way farther. Oh, thank you so much. I I like to consider this book, I call it my theology for people who are searching Barnes & Noble uh, for a a new way of putting together their story. And so this really is theology. It really is appeals to church history. It appeals to great world religions. But it's done in such a way that invites, a, I hope, a, a conversation of people who you know, are not uh, embedded in the traditional kinds of language of theology. I'm trying to reach beyond that. Yeah. So it's fantastic. Tell new stories. Get your friends. Get some bread and wine. Get the book. Read. Discuss. Thank you so much, Diana. Oh, thank you, Rob. This is wonderful. Grace and peace, everybody.